Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. I'm Cardiff Garcia, a New York-based correspondent for Alphaville. And I'm joined in Geneva by Izzy Kaminska. Izzy, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. And I know you're very excited about today's topic. You've been writing about it for a year, the robot future. Well, yes, and I've been writing about it for over a year, but I've obviously always been interested in robots. Well, then our guest is perfect for this because... His name is Ila Nurbash. He's the author of Robot Futures, a book that came out earlier this year, and he's the director of the Create Lab of the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Ila, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. It's a pleasure. So, Ila, I want to start with a very broad question, because you write early on in the book that robotics technology is like, and these these are your words, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, Robotics technology is like a glue that connects the physical material world and the digital universe. Why don't you just start by explaining what you mean by that and maybe telling us what distinguishes robotics technology from other kinds of technology that we have. Sure. Uh, You know, it used to be that robotics was a term we usually used either uh, for the extreme of science fiction, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2, androids or social devices, or we use them to talk about automation devices in factories, things that weld, things that stud, and do the work for us in factories that, frankly, put people out of jobs. What's interesting and different about robotics today is that the physical ability robots have to push back on the physical world to make changes to our real uh, environment is suddenly being augmented by the fact that they have access to all the information that data valence, so to speak, that data surveillance is gathering about us on the Internet. So robots can make decisions about how to behave in the physical world by accessing the the world of, if you want, Google in a way that humans just can't. And so in a way they're superpowered, they are supercharged with the data that exists in the digital world and yet the ability to fly around as a drone and deliver a package in the physical world. Okay, and you talk about cognition, perception, and action. What are the importance of each of those to robotic technology and, and how we interact with them? Right. One interesting question is sort of what sets robots apart from other kinds of digital electronic devices. And really, robots are a kind of physical digital electronic device. Cognition, perception, and action are kind of interesting ways to look at it. Robots are powerful because they're tangible devices. They have a a real physical form. They're not simply stuck in the virtual world. And that means they can push back on our physical world. The way they decide what to do is also interesting. Perception is about sensing the world, about being able to figure out what's going on. Robots can perceive the world. They can literally have sensors that can tell where your pupils are pointing, whether you're smiling or frowning. Pretty soon you'll even have robots that can lip-read and figure out what you're saying, just like, in, uh, just like HAL in 2001. That's the perception side. On the action side, robots have all manner of ways to actually push on the world. They can 
literally phone your friend if you're using a new version of Google Now and tell them that you're going to be late. They can adjust the temperature of the air in your house because they know that you're about to get home because they have GPS on your phone. They can uh, physically change the world by being a gyrover or a, a, a quadcopter and actually moving around and taking pictures or doing something a little more, uh, let's say, significant than just taking pictures. And then the cognition part is really interesting because it's the question of deciding what to do next. And it used to be that robots were self-contained. They had to have their own brain. They had to look at the world, perceive it, and decide how to behave. But today, because we have this Internet of Things, so to speak, we have this Internet connectivity that objects can have. And so robots can even use the entire cloud to help them make decisions about that, that face I'm seeing. Who is it? And what should I do about it? Or that language that person just spoke. What did they say? And how do I respond? So cognition, the ability to decide how to behave and what to do, is also something that's becoming ever more powerful because robots can bridge that digital, physical realm. I, fa- I find it all fascinating. Well, I've noticed, um, having gone to a few robotic conferences uh, this year, I've noticed that there seems to be something of an acceleration in the information we have, how to produce, and, and in, the, in the efforts that are being made. And a lot of people have, uh, have been sort of referencing this to the fact that suddenly the collaborative uh, research space is helping um, progress in, on, all, on all fronts of the robotic sort of research space. Is, is that something you would, you've seen? And would you agree that the collaborative research approach is now really helping to make a really big difference? Absolutely. I agree completely, Izzy. There's sort of three different trends, I think, that are really changing the way, the, the tempo of robotics and where it's headed. One of them is collaboration between researchers. As you point out, companies like Willow Garage have created these programming environments that capture a lot of the basic uh, abilities robots need to have, like not getting lost, being able to map the space there and by looking around. And so the fact that we have more tools is making it easier for more researchers to get a leg up and start operating at the very fringe of what's possible. The second trend that's kind of interesting, and you can see it in the world of things like MakerBots, is that we have the commodification of robot creation. We're making it so easy to make robots and to invent new kinds of robot applications that the public can get involved. So it's not even just the researchers collaborating with one another anymore. It's literally anybody around the world deciding to make a robot and then making that robot. And it's funny, in my book I have a chapter called Robot Smog because, in fact, those robots can be wonderful, but they can also pollute our world audiovisually in pretty absurd ways. The third really interesting trend that fits into those first two is that, in fact, we used to think of robots as these completely autonomous things, and that made life really hard because if the robot has to be totally self-operated, it has to be able to do everything by itself. But more and more now, especially because of wireless technologies, we think of robots that are very effective as things that are sometimes on their own, sometimes autonomous, and sometimes controlled by people. And Mm -hmm. the fact that you can have it partially remote-controlled means... Suddenly, you can see a robot on the sidewalk, it can look at you, it can say something to you, and you're not sure, is that robot just talking to me because it's a robot, or is there a person behind it who's trying to talk to me, who recognizes me? And that fact that robots can be partially autonomous just opens the door, uh, the floodgates, if you will, on how many different applications we can start up, because the robot can ask its its human uh, owners for help. Yeah, there's a there's a strain of I don't want to call it pessimism, but a, a strain of um, caution, a strain of worry that I think runs throughout your book. Can, can you talk a little more about that second point you made about robot smog or 
I guess the word congestion came to mind as I was reading that chapter, but sure. you draw this kind of interesting analogy between the very early days of the Internet when everybody could have a website. It was a little chaotic. It was full of extreme and vitriolic and balkanized opinion, uh, and it was kind of hugely annoying. But you can, you can get up from your chair and walk away from the Internet. When robots are out in the physical world, you can't walk away from them. So can you just talk about some of the things we should be worried about with respect to, to what you call robot smog and the physical presence, and you think it will be within the next 10 or 20 years, so pretty soon, uh, of robots in the physical world? Yes, you summarized that really well, Cardiff. Um, it's an interesting problem. You know, the reason I wrote the book in the first place is because there's so many pieces you'll see in newspapers and, and modern books about this sort of post-singularity idea that robots are going to be our saviors, they're going to end world hunger because we all download ourselves to avatars and such. And, and of course, we'll be immortal anyway. And <laughs> what's interesting about all of these opinions is they're really about some far future in which robots basically create a kind of Eden on, on Earth, which is already kind of funny because we all know what happens when you introduce new technologies in terms of unintended consequences, just like when you introduce um, invasive species like kudzu. But what's interesting is this is all stuff that's decades or centuries out, and we're forgetting how robots will change the world in 10 or 20 years. And exactly as you said, what's fascinating is that 3D printing technologies, the, the shared space of invention that we have, is going to allow more and more people to be as extremal, as balkanized, as able to get their own megaphone and yell what they care about in the physical world as they can in the Internet world. And yes, the Internet world is relegated to your smartphone or your table, and it doesn't interrupt you when you go out and take a walk in the park. And yet, I remember reading an article just last week about um, Helen Greiner, who was one of the founders of iRobot, which used to be called IS Robotics, talking about how great it would be if a quadrotor from her new company would meet you halfway during your run in the park and give you a bottle of water. It's a really fascinating example of what happens when technologists take a hammer and decide to find interesting nails. Because you can start to kind of imagine there's a bunch of runners in Central Park, and then there's a whole bunch of quadcopters trying not to hit each other, delivering water to them. And you're trying to read the newspaper. <laughs> and there's a bunch of quadcopters that are basically blowing the air above you, pushing the newspaper out of your hands, and of course they're noisy. And, you know, that's not even before we start thinking about the amount of energy that went into making something that carries a bottle of water for a runner, which has, you know, absurdity in the extreme written all over it. That idea that we can start to invent and sell new devices that don't just solve existing problems, they define whole new problems. They actually solve problems we never had. So you that mean, um, as well as tripping over the iRobot, the Roomba, every day, like when it, he's running around, I'll, we'll be bumping into all sorts of like random automated uh, robots that's autonomous to a certain degree and drones and God knows what, and it'll be hard to kind of, steer our own kind of human selves through this mesh of synthetic uh, organism. Yeah, I, compl I completely think we're headed there. You know, it's funny. Um, I used to use a lot of videos in my classes from YouTube, and it worked all right. You know, I would show videos that were relevant to the you know, ethics discussion we were having in class. I can't do that anymore, because if I go to YouTube and try and show a video, there's a 20-second ad. So I have to steer myself in the Internet world through all this other data that's being thrown at me that actually makes it much harder for me to use the Internet as kind of a first-class information device. Now, when you take a walk in the park today with your child or with your dog, 
you don't have to wonder whether that robot that's going really fast, like Big Dog <laughs> from uh, Dynamic you know, uh, Robotics in, in Boston, when you see that robot running in the, in the park, today you don't have to worry, is that robot going to turn left and hurt my child? Should I tell them to steer clear of it the way I would tell them to hold my hand when they walk across the street? When you see an automated car at a four-way intersection and you have a stroller in front of you, are you just going to walk in front of the automated car at the stop sign and cross its path and just assume that it sees the stroller and will stay stopped? In, in, the, in the human case, I look at their eyes. I, I make a kind of social you know, gesture, making sure they can see me, I can see them, and then I walk across the uh, intersection. But an autonomous car has dropped off its, its, its owners at the cafe. It's looking for parking. It's dead empty. Who am I going to look at? Which eye contact am I going to search for? So we're going to be ever more faced by all of these robots that interact with us in ways we aren't designed for. We haven't been basically taught how to use them. <laughs> and we'll constantly have to question, okay, is this dangerous? Is this not dangerous? How am I supposed to behave? Is this a practical joke? Is there somebody behind it? Is it going to come spray water on me and laugh and, and then fly away? Or am I safe? And another thing that you mentioned already is the dependence on the data set that these different robots and different sort of, um, I guess, privately produced robots depend on. Now, presuming, presuming that every single uh, robot that comes to market either uses, say, Google data or develops its own data set, um, you can have kind of contradictory responses. So presumably, you know, like we saw the the clash of Google Maps versus uh, um, what was the other maps provider that was, you know, the, the, we saw this um, disputed data or rather not disputed, but like chat, the data sets didn't match so well. So right. would that then lead us to a to an incentive to create one like uh, uniform data set for all these different robots to use or would we then all or or can different data providers still kind of coexist in that environment it's funny we actually uh, in the book i actually described this idea of maybe there'll be a google for robots a special yeah. data set controlled by google for robots and in my blog i i wrote just last week because there's a company that just got started who said that they're creating a cloud-based repository of data for robots. So there's a company actually doing this now. But you see, then that company will compete with another company, which will bring Absolutely. its own data, and you'll still have all these conflicting data sources. Whereas, and, and they'll I mean, have different do we then kinds of... have to get some sort of universal global law that creates one data set for all, all of the robots that are you know, roaming the Earth? Well, we can ask the same question, and it works the same way with humans. You know, there's multiple companies today that take your property, your identification, your shopping behavior, your zip code, and sell it and buy it to other companies. There's three or four major companies. All the marketers go to those companies to get information about you when you go to a website and sell you exactly the right coupon on their website to get you to actually make a purchase. It'll be the same story with robots. There will be companies that know all about us humans, and buy and sell for the sake of robots because those robots are going to mediate an experience with us. And I talk in the book about this idea of movie star syndrome. You know, I think, I don't know what it's like to be a movie star, but everywhere they go, everybody who talks to them knows more about them than they know about the person they're talking to. So they're constantly surrounded by people that know too much about them. And it, it, I'm sure it's an unsettling experience. It's funny because robots will present us all with this uh, rather unfortunate malaise where a robot can see you in the in the street, 
and have access to your information because there's companies that provide that uh, for profit. And in, in turn, that robot can ask you, so, you know, you were up uh, surfing all night last night and you need a new posturopedic bed, so let's talk sleeping. Now, that's a very extreme example, and there's much more subtle ways to do that. But it is absolutely the case that websites today are able to fish information about you and then use that to customize their messaging, and robots will do the exact same thing. That's part of just the general erosion of privacy uh, more generally, right? In other words, if not only our activity online, but now our activity in the physical world is being data-mined, essentially, there's there's no real turning back, right? Or at least I got the sense from, from reading your book that, that this is a process that maybe can be slowed, but not likely to be stopped. I think you're right. I don't think there's a turning back because we will always trade a little bit more privacy for convenience and for cost savings. So the robots can you know, see our, our eye gazes, and if we're in a shopping mall, they can tell what we look at and when we say, oh, that's way too expensive, and they can change the price. And that means it'll be cheaper for us eventually. So people will gradually trade, just like they do when they get an Advantage card from the local supermarket, who can now track their buying patterns, but in, in return, they get a little bit of a discount. Of course, the supermarket does that because they make a lot more money <laughs> than the amount of discount they give you. That's a one-way erosion. What's interesting with robots is that erosion does go into the physical world. They can observe us, they can understand how we behave in the physical world, and they can market to us in the physical world, uh, just like in movies like Minority Report. So they can hit us with advertising in the physical world just as hard as they hit us in the Internet world. Um, so in terms of uh, artificial intelligence, are we anywhere near passing the Turing test yet, or when do you foresee um, the Turing test being passed, if well, at all? It's an interesting question, you know, just for your listeners, the Turing test idea is can essentially, in this case, a robot fool human observers into not knowing which one's the robot and which is the real human when you observe interaction. The trick is it used to be we thought about the Turing test as this very useful way to understand how smart a computer is, but there's lots of fun, tricky ways to make a robot that passes a Turing test. For instance, if you make a really rude robot that's random, that curses a whole lot and says things that aren't related to your question, people have a heck of a time distinguishing that from a rude human being. Now, making a poetic robot that you fall in love with is different. <laughs> so well, but haven't there been cases where people have fallen in love with uh, what were basically algorithms on, on the Internet, sending them emails and letters? Absolutely. There are definitely cases of people falling in love with an image they have in their mind of something that's much more than what the real robot is on the Internet. That's true. What's funny about the Turing test is for narrow areas of applicability, like, say, making a flight reservation, those are the places where we're going to get to have a harder and harder time distinguishing the robot from reality. So it's going to be easy to tell a robot apart from a human if you're going to go out to dinner with one and sit down and just chat. But when you're conducting some business, like making a reservation in, in, for that for a table at that restaurant, that's where it's going to become harder and harder to know, wait, am I talking to a maitre d' who's human, or is this actually a robot? And I write about that because I think as we start having social interactions with these robots that are essentially passing the Turing test for certain narrow cases, will we treat those robots like humans? Or are we going to start to assign upon them the rights of a human in our head? Or are we going to be a little more abusive with them verbally, say, than we are to humans, and will that bleed over into the way we deal with human maitre d's? 
Can you relate the two anecdotes that you shared in the book about two robots that you built earlier in your career? I think you might have been a graduate student. One was Vagabond, the other was Chips, and what happened to them and, and the issues of, of ethics and rights that came up from them? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fun question there. Vagabond is a robot that I built at Stanford University that navigated the quad. Stanford has this gorgeous outdoor sandstone quadrangle, and it would navigate in these arcades. And at one point, I turned the corner to do something, and when I came back, it was down the hall, sort of uh, 100 yards away, and there was a man and a woman next to it. And the woman was blocking its path, and the guy had cowboy boots on, and he was kicking it as hard as he could. And the robot was tipping and then falling back, uh, kind of righting itself. So it was almost falling over. It's a little round, trash can-like robot. So I ran there as fast as I could, and they started walking away just as I got there. And the man was telling the woman, see, I'm still smarter than the thing. And I was kind of amazed that they would walk up to this little robotic trash can and just start kicking it. It's something you wouldn't do to, say, a toddler who's toddling down the hall. And the second example that started to explain to me how different our view is when we kind of apply our ethics and our behavioral decision-making to robots was CHIPS, which was a navigator that gave tours in Dinosaur Hall at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. People would get in front of it. Even when there's a long line of people following this thing on a tour, people would get in front of the robot and play with it and, and block its path. And you could see the people behind the robot getting irate because they're trying to get a tour. And there's one guy here who's being a smart aleck blocking its path, which you would, of course, never do to a human tour guide. You'd never think of blocking their path just to have fun. And so we had the reprogrammed chips so that when it got stopped like that, instead of just saying, excuse me, which just didn't work, it said, I'm giving a tour to all these people. Would you please excuse us? And when it says excuse us, the person who's playing with the robot suddenly would look up, notice the people behind the robot, and jump out of the way and go, oh, I'm sorry. And so he was respecting the people. He had basically no respect for the robot. What's interesting about this all is that philosophically, when we look at ethics and sort of business ethics, when people start ascribing agency to another creature, uh, to another anything, to a sentient being, when we consider that that thing has agency, the ability to make decisions, that's when it becomes part of our own personal ethics to assign to it certain rights. And what's weird about this is if we're going to make robots that are truly sophisticated social interaction systems, if we start assigning agency to them, if we start treating them like people because that's what makes us human, then suddenly they, they lose their advantages as being a robot because they could be human. And so we face this very strange future in which very sophisticated robots may either cause us to become more inhumane in general or we're going to start treating them more human and that makes it's them less like robots. It's interesting because it kind of poses the same challenges that say, um, you know, slave history in the U.S. Uh, opposed to uh, ethics and, and uh, uh, social evolution in that sense. I mean, in some way, robots are becoming potentially a new slave class for us. And I guess how we react and respond to them will be determined by how much we respect their sort of um, their, their, their robotic rights in our own social um, environment. History of slavery is a very interesting place to look to try and kind of project our own future. That's right. And it's a touchy subject, but it's also very important to think about agency and slavery and the fact that it, when, when people start to understand that every human being has agency, the ability to make decisions, at that point you have to 
preserve your own humanity by giving them the freedom to have that agency to make that those choices. And so it's odd, yeah, if, if robots appear <laughs> to show the power of free will, it's going to become very difficult for us to treat them in any way other than human. How would we? I mean, what what are what are some of the the legal or ethical frameworks that we would have to put in place to to not treat them like uh, a new underclass? Or in some situations, I mean, in some situations, if it's like a mechanical thing and it doesn't have agency, then you don't have to worry about it. But it seems to me like we're going to have to come up with some kind of very clearly defined legalistic framework to prevent this sort of thing. Even if it, I mean, we're talking 40 or 50 years down the line, or maybe not quite so much, or maybe a little sooner, but I mean, how do we how do we actually prepare for for this kind it, of thing? It, it seems also, sorry, just to add to that point, it seems like the way we will go to a standard approach might be via the respect of property rights, because at the end of the day, a robot will presumably be somebody's property at some for for a long time. It's a tricky one. Uh, so first of all, how do we even regulate our own human behavior around this subject is is challenging, exactly because. What we're talking about is dehumanization, but we're applying it to a machine. If you abuse a robot, if we have a future robot that looks a whole lot like an adult human being, and you abuse it, and you're very abusive toward it in very violent ways, that's probably going to end up having to be not legal. The the fact that you're invoking that kind of violence is bad. If you don't buy that, amp it up by suggesting that the thing looks like a very small child. And it's an even bigger issue. It's even more you know, panic-stricken to imagine that it's okay for people to abuse this thing. So in a way, it's kind of like taking violence in video games and making them so real that they're tangible, they're in the physical world, other people can see you doing it. And at some point, it's just not okay anymore. The challenge becomes, on the property side, yeah, the robots are owned by people. But what's odd about robots, as opposed to, say, apps on your smartphone, is that robots will have incidental interactions with all the other people in the world, too. If your robot is out doing a chore for you, uh, buying you something or delivering something down the hall, it's going to run into 20 other people that don't own it. And so you're going to have all these interactions with somebody else's property, except that that property makes decisions, has social impact, (laughs) and that introduces a complexity in terms of legal frameworks and causality that we just don't have today codified. What's well, funny I, about I mean, this? that's where the, the parallel with slavery comes in, um, where obviously it just seemed completely illogical to most of the world that you could uh, ascribe property, the rights of property to a to an to any being that was obviously uh, fully, you know, human. And <laughs> the same applies to robot. The more they more the more they interact and appear to be human and sentient, the more. Uh, the idea that they are somebody's property becomes becomes a sort of somewhat um, disgusting kind of concept. Here's a really weird turn on that. When we talk about underemployment and chronic underemployment, one of the weirdnesses about robots is every year they can do more of what makes humans special. So we become less special, so to speak. Every year they can take more of our middle class jobs away from us. And they're owned by companies. So what's happening is every year companies can have as property the thing that they used to hire as human being. And so there's kind of a weird conversion from labor to property. And one of the futurist arguments online these days is, well, that's fine, but what has to happen is every time somebody can't find a job or gets thrown out of their job because they've been replaced by robots, they have to have incremental ownership of that robot. And in a way, if you take that argument to the ultimate extreme, when people are born, and I don't buy this, but this is the idea, when people are born, Everybody who's born should have ownership of 
shares in all the robots of the world because the robots, in fact, are what are making the world run by then. So there's a funny inversion of the concept of property where property for the first time is sort of displacing labor in a very major way across a lot of different kinds of job descriptions. And that's going to change our relationship to property itself. But that, that, that solution you put forward is like ultimately the um, you know, socialist uh, utopian vision, really, where everybody owns the, you know, the means of capital that keeps the world going. And we're all equally, you know, it's like a shared collaborative ownership structure. It sounds a little bit like it, but these debates uh, roar over the Internet about this, and there's pretty horrible, you know, if you look at the second half of comments on a lot of stories about underemployment, this is what they're about. Because what happens is people argue, yes, it's, it's socialism. Other people say, no, it's the best of capitalism because you need a purchasing class. So you have to have enough capital in the hands of enough people to be able to actually still buy stuff so that capitalism can succeed. I'm not sure if it's socialism, capitalism, or a very strange sort of nauseous hybrid of the two. Well, I'm glad you, you brought up the uh, economic angle here, and this is something that Izzy and I have talked about um, quite a bit in the past. And I think one of the responses to the arguments that the two of you just put forward is that, of course, this is happening now, and you've got this divergence between capital and labor. But over time, what will happen is that people will learn to work alongside the robots, and the existence of robots will essentially create a new series of jobs that are needed for people to either control them or to build them, fix them, etc. Um, do you are, are you pessimistic that those kinds of new jobs will be enough to keep pace with the loss of middle-class jobs that the robotics revolution will bring about? You know, it's interesting. I think a year ago, that that was, optimism was definitely there that, hey, this is just like the Industrial Revolution. We're just going to create more jobs because we're going to create whole new categories of jobs, and robots will just be tools like screwdrivers. They're just really complex screwdrivers that we use. And what happened over the last year is, you know, there's a book that a couple of uh, MIT economists wrote called Race Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. That sort of started a really nice direction on this because they started charting productivity of companies versus employment. And they showed how through the early 1900s, yeah, productivity went up as automation got hold, but more job categories got created, and so employment numbers went up. And in fact, uh, essentially the salary level, the, the income level of the employees went up too. But if you look at the mid-80s and beyond, since the mid-80s, automation has absolutely started to prosper. Productivity has gone up very massively, and what's interesting, it's become disentangled from employment and from the average uh, amount of money that each employee makes. So that basically salaries are going down, employment levels are going down, and productivity is continuing to soar. In fact, it's curving upwards even faster. So there's been some kind of dynamic change in the way the dynamics of economies work. And that, I believe, is a harbinger of the future, because I believe what's going on is that it used to be that, yes, robots were tools. Automation was a tool. And as a tool, it it unleashed new categories of job opportunities. But now, they're hitting the middle class. And as they hit the middle class, white-collar and blue-collar jobs are in danger. And the rate at which people can get trained for new job positions and the number of those positions available in higher parts of the pyramid, which are narrower, is being outpaced by the speed with which robots can learn to do new things. Learn is a bit strong, of course. It's the engineers who are engineering them to do new things. But they're innovating faster than people can even learn in a new job. And I believe that's the future. In fact, there was an MIT Tech Review uh, cover article this month 
starting to say, is this permanent? Is underemployment a permanent condition that humans face from here forward? The thing, yeah, the thing that, I make, that comes to my mind is that, um, obviously, when you have productivity um, accelerated because of uh, the fact that we have so much more robotic capability, um, we get to a point where we we can't necessarily offset that with other jobs because we we do come about uh, come across resource constraints and and robots themselves obviously because I, I always find it very interesting that people talk about the robotic revolution but they seem to overlook the fact that unless i'm like missing a huge part of robotic research robots themselves obviously are powered by some sort of power and that sort of ties us to it kind of brings everything back to resources and the resource constraint that we're faced with and even if middle class jobs are um, offset with jobs that are focused more on bureaucracy and just an an illusion of of the fact that we're doing a job or maybe more creative jobs that robots can't do um, adding to to those sort of intangible um, growth uh, factors rather than the very tangible ones that can be measured in, in dollar terms. Um, it still all fundamentally comes back to resources. What would you say to that? I agree with you that there are fundamental resource constraints. At the same time, look at the developing world and the speed with which they're growing, places like China and India and South Africa. What's interesting is if you look at long-term employment in a place like South Africa, they've always assumed that uh, they're going to go from you know 30% unemployment down to our 5, 6, 7% unemployment figures as they develop. But now there's a different kind of thinking. The thinking is even though they're not being limited in growth by resources, that the basic steady state employment level they're going to get to in this new economy might actually be significantly higher unemployment levels than the U.S. ever saw in the 1980s and 90s. So there might be basic changes in the way that the dynamics of employment works. Um, And it's true that resource constraints are always there, but the thing about the economy is that it's a profit-driven machine. And so nobody's going to build something if the resources required to build it cost more than the amount they're going to profit by selling it to you. The robots today, the automation we have, is actually increasing that gap. It's causing more profit per product sold than we had 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Can we ever get to a point where we will have uh, energy-independent robots which can sort of fend for themselves when it comes to, you know, running their own fuel, sort of like in Back to the Future where they take trash and convert it to fuel or or some sort of, you know, where where they can be fueled by our um, waste or something like that? I I don't think that's in our near future, no. It's it's interesting. Um, You know, one of the topics people talk about, one of the tropes people have is the idea Will robots start sort of being energy-independent creatures? And and is that a runaway scenario? Another trope is the idea of robots designing newer, more superior robots. And if robot A can make robot B that's even better than robot A, then we're cooked because at that point B can make C, can make D, and and we're done for. Those are still science fiction. Um, And what's interesting is those are aspects of science fiction that are so much in our minds that they're obfuscating what will happen anyway in the next 10 or 15 years even though robots can't be energy independent and can't, you know, invent new robots. They can still have massive social impact on our world. Guys, I want to switch gears a little bit for a second. Ila, there's a section of your book where you talk about urban search and rescue, and I think this is an area where there's a lot of people that are very excited about robotic possibilities, essentially the ability of robots to enter into 
like a dangerous disaster zone um, where people can't enter into and do what's needed to help or save the, the humans that are sort of in trouble. Um, and the technology seems to be accelerating pretty quickly in that area, but you use it as a way to talk about something a little bit more futuristic um, and therefore a little bit more necessarily speculative. You use it as a way to talk about control, and specifically the idea that eventually one person will be able to control multiple robots at a time. So, for instance, in an urban search and rescue mission, let's say you have different snake-like robots that are sort of crawling through tunnels to get to wherever humans are trapped. Um, they'll be semi-autonomous, so they'll be able to do some things and make some decisions on their own, and then for some things they'll need a human to, to control them. And so the idea is that eventually we might be able to, in a sense, live multiple lives at once, almost like through robotic avatars, that one human will be like, and this is your term, a strategist-in-chief, essentially telling the robots what to do and how to act, and then they'll be able to carry it out. Um, this is pretty futuristic and, and fascinating stuff. I mean, tell us about that, how realistic that possibility is, uh, and, and what you think it means for who will be. Absolutely. I think it's a really interesting future. Uh, the urban search and rescue example is great because it's just what you want. You want the cognitive load of a few uh, firefighters and, and urban rescue experts to have lots of tentacles in the disaster. You'd love to have thousands of robots in there and to tell them things like, okay, go to the second floor, map it for me, check out the structural integrity so I can send in the human firefighters on the first floor. Great. Now go to the third floor, now go up the elevator shaft. I mean, you'd love to have this incredible army at your beck and call. What's interesting is if you kind of mash that together with telepresence, um, the direction we're going where we really want not just FaceTime, not just the ability to uh, see somebody's face over, over a camera using their iPhone, say, or using Skype, but that we want to be able to actually drive around there. You know, you want to get to the point where you can go to your child's room and say goodnight to them and read a book with them, even though you're at a conference 1,500 miles away. Once you can do that, then you take that and mash it with how we use smartphones today. Because when you go and sit in a restaurant and look around, people are having a conversation with the human being in front of them. But they're also engaged in conversations by text. They're checking their email. They're responding to their email. Sometimes they're even on the phone physically talking to a human being into the phone and talking to the person in front of them and going back and forth. So we're becoming multitaskers. I don't think we evolved that way. We're becoming ever better I'm not sure better is the right word for it. We're becoming ever more demanding <laughs> to have many, many conversations at the same time. The natural conclusion of that, when you have telepresence, when you have the ability to control robots in different places and see through their eyes, is the idea of kind of Google Glass-like faceware that allows you to switch between the views of multiple robots. And what's powerful about that is this idea that you can be at that board meeting in Florida and you can be checking on your kids and making sure that they're all right, and you can be having dinner with your wife. And as you do this more and more, it becomes sort of a station in life that you can juggle many different relationships simultaneously. And the reason you can do this is because the robots can learn your behavior and start to take and do some of the light lifting for you. So when you're visiting with somebody and talking to them, and they say, okay, well, let's schedule our next chat at that point, the robot could put up a little green light and say, hey, I can do the scheduling for you. I know your schedule. So it just smoothly takes over using your voice and continues the conversation to figure out that you're going to meet next week, Wednesday at 5 p.m. Meanwhile, you can switch over and have another conversation. And so who you are 
And what your identity means becomes this shifting balance between robots that know your schedule and know your preferences and know how to talk like you, carrying out your preferences, and you manipulating them and tweaking them and pointing them in the right direction so that you're getting what you want. This is a strange future because, in a way, instead of living one life, you start living multiple lives simultaneously. And it kind of makes it very biblical and very om- like omnipotent in a way. For we all become potentially these sort of beings can, that can be everywhere at the same time simultaneously, which also makes me wonder about the research we're doing and, and the developments that we're seeing in the sort of cyborg front of, of the robotics uh, revolution. I mean, it may, is that perhaps how we go more in the future, that we actually start merging with the technology and uh, inevitably kind of become like a completely interlinked uh, organic uh, database? Well, I only hear more stories of how horrible people feel when they're away from their smartphones, when they're away from the Internet because they feel like they're suffering some kind of withdrawal. So, yeah, I think we're becoming more and more permanently interlinked with our technology. It's funny. It it, it does seem biblical, but it's also the way some CEOs operate, uh, where what they want more than anything else in the world is 20 mini-me's who do exactly what they want and do in each situation they're presented precisely what the CEO would have done in that situation. They check in, you know, when when they're not sure what to do, they give a quick call to the CEO, and the CEO points them in the right direction. So in a way, the very ultra-powerful have always been in this funny position of having a lot of tentacles in the form of human labor. And robots are, are simply going to allow us all to have those kinds of uh, weird relationships where our identity is smeared across multiple places, multiple times, and multiple machines. So the drawback here is that we already have a difficult enough time just in the digital universe being present in the moment, or in some cases, I guess, getting our work done. So if you're sitting in front of your computer, and let's say you're a writer or a finance blogger, and you're trying to get your work done, and it's so easy to switch to Twitter or check your Gmail or check Facebook or go on Skype. Right. And essentially, your point is that this is going to now take place in the real world, that this is going to transfer to the real world, and you draw the I think you coined the phrase attention uh, dilution disorder, or at least I hadn't heard it before, which is like a real-world manifestation of attention deficit disorder, which just took place, I guess, in your brain. Now it's taking place everywhere, so we won't be able to really be present in the moment at any time, or we'll we'll struggle with it uh, increasingly. I, that's a that's a good way to put it. It's it's interesting. Here's a really simple example. Um, let's say you when you're at work, you have a dog at home. And you always feel a little bit guilty that the dog is home alone, stuck in the house. So if you have a telepresence robot at home, pretty soon now, you can patch into the telepresence robot and it can see your face and you can chat with it and run around and maybe even has an arm. You can throw a ball, you know, throw a tennis ball down the hall and it'll go get it and come back. Now, that's all fine. It feels great, right? You're, you're logging into your house and you're interacting with your dog. Fantastic. Well, that's just another piece of distraction that you now have it's meaningful distraction, but it still pulls you out of the desk chair you're sitting in trying to write the chapter. So, yeah, you can go check your email, you can go look at the current news stories online, or you can go and play catch with your dog a little bit. And you can multiply that by 100. There's no reason to stop at just one telepresent robot with your dog. And that's what makes this so odd, is that um, we can always add more of this kind of slippery slope style of telepresence and as we do so, it's exactly as you said, we're less and less in a single moment at a single time. Some people will revel in that. They'll love the idea that they're a puppet master 
and that they're in 50 places at one time. But I mean, it's, uh, it strikes me as deeply yeah. philosophical, and it becomes it becomes almost like uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of this sort of stuff predicted in science fiction, but um, it, it does make you think: Do we need laws and regulations? Uh, do we need to have a serious debate on a government level about um, how society and humanity progresses? Because it is it is kind of going to mess with what it means to be human. And yet I think regulation is is utterly disastrous in this case. I don't think we can tell people you may not play catch with your dog at home using a telepresence robot. We we just can't do it. What's interesting is if you look at other industries and how they deal with potential ethical consequences, they have codes. You know, civil engineering has a fantastic American Board of Ethics code. Uh, Nuclear engineering has codes. And they even have fast reaction groups of scientists who know a whole lot about the context and so when they're presented with new data, like cold fusion, they're able to come up with an intelligent response. We don't have that in robotics. A new company could come along, make a telepresence system, and say, hey, uh, moms and dads, you have a new infant at home, but you, you want to go out on a date night dinner? Great. You can do it now. As long as you're only 10 minutes away from home, this robot will uh, look in the crib, and if anything happens, it'll call you right away on your smartphone. So now you have a babysitter, and you can go to dinner. Sorry, go ahead. The dangers in terms of like hacking those devices and getting that robot to then go and kill your child. Well, but th- this is a weird thing, right? The weird thing is that today there aren't any groups of roboticists who are fast reaction, who can look at that company's product and understand even and speak as a group of experts about what the positive and negative influences are that that system can have, and yeah, what the loopholes are, the ways in which it can be hacked, or the ways in which it doesn't necessarily live up to the advertising that, that they're providing at the company level. So it's tricky, right? It's okay to have Roombas and have them not clean, clean well, but as robots start to do more and more critical things in the world, it would be nice to have some kind of, of oversight uh, that we do have in the world of autopilots, that we have in the world of medical robotics, that we have in the world of civil engineering and bridge building, but we simply don't have it for these kinds of social robots. I want to ask about the the theme of accountability, which you write about a lot in the book and which I I think Izzy was just alluding to. So the idea being that, especially in the case of robots that are semi-autonomous or autonomous, so many different people went into designing them, to uh, deciding what they're going to be used for, to actually setting them off on on their mission, and this is especially an issue with, um, with drones. The idea that if it makes a mistake and clearly we're nowhere close to the point where they won't be making mistakes, it's really hard to assign accountability because essentially some of these decisions were made by the robot itself. So how do you trace it back? Can you just get into some of these kind of murky issues and what do you think needs to be done about that? The drone example is a really great one. You know, there's the manufacturer of the drone. There's a sensor package on the drone. You know, I I gave it the face of this bad guy. It saw the face and fired the weaponry. I did the right thing. It just saw it mistook the wrong person for that face. Or somebody put a poster of that face on somebody's door because they don't like that family, and it blew up their house because it mistook the poster for an actual physical human being. There's the sensor's designer. Then there's the people who educated the military officer and told them the limitations of the system. Maybe they should have educated them more. Maybe the military officer actually has to be a robotics expert to have a clue, to have enough of a clue about the limitations of the system to even use it. Kind of like saying that uh, somebody who's flying autopilot in this 777 has to be so good that they don't need the autopilot. Um, Otherwise, they're just not qualified to use the autopilot. What gets even murkier 
is that you, you flip over from, from drones to other, other situations in which there's a question of accountability. And fundamentally, complex systems can become so complicated that we can't fully test them. Toyota had a great example of this when they had that Prius brake problem. At just the right resonance frequency, when the wheels going up and down at the right speeds, the brake was having a little bit of a delay. Now, they'd thoroughly tested this car, but they couldn't test every possible kind of ridge line on every possible kind of road. So they couldn't test every single resonant pattern. <laughs> and and that's because it's a complex system. And when a system gets complex enough, you can never test it all the time. So even though there's millions of Toyotas out there, it took millions and millions of Toyotas driving millions of hours of drive time for one or two to start to have this problem. With robots, they're even more complex than a Toyota. They're more complex than a car. Their sensors will take in even more data. So when that robot does make a mistake, was it the operator? Was it the telepresence operator? Was it the robot itself? And is it even repeatable, or was that a once-in-a-lifetime mistake that that robot makes? Uh, we're going to be faced with ever more cases of failure in very complex systems where the failure is temporary, you can't trace it back, you can't figure out who is responsible, and you're not even sure if it's going to happen again. Um, you can imagine this with autonomous cars. So let's say in a 20-year future, we have 10 million autonomous cars on the road, and we have a lot less traffic accidents because of it, because there's fewer drunk drivers and fewer sleepy drivers running off the road, which is great. But that something is kind of weird, because we understand when a drunk driver crashes why they crash. We cognitively get that in our brain, and we understand the accountability. Now, if instead of 30,000 deaths a year, we have 1,000 deaths a year, but those are utterly random, we're not going to understand that. We have 1,000 deaths a year because this car randomly swerved left and went down the ditch, and everybody died inside, and it was a robotic car. There's no accountability. There's no sense of understanding for why it happened. We can't blame alcohol. We can't blame sleepiness. It was a bug, but it was a bug that happens really, really rarely. Of course, no bug happens zero times, but it's hard to even figure out, is it going to happen again? Do I ban all autonomous cars now? Well, if I do, I'm just going to go from 1,000 deaths a year to 30,000 deaths a year again. So it's very difficult in this future to understand the lottery of error. It sounds like we'll have a lot of force majeure type uh, accountability, um, act of God um, scenarios, presumably. And they'll be rare, and it'll be very hard to trace them back to what caused it, because there's so many different complex factors that could come into play. Do you, do you think, given um, the potential dangers and the the overload of robots everywhere in our life, do you, do you think that eventually there will be demand for sort of robots-free zones or robot um, <laughs> sort of totally uh, like areas that are detached from the grid? It's interesting, right? There, most public libraries in the U.S. have signs that say, "Please only text. Don't use a don't use a cell phone in, in the library." So we, we have demands where we try and create certain atmosphere in certain places. But we're going to depend on these robots. You know, 1,000 deaths a year is better than 30,000 deaths a year. It's just that they're more random, and that feels strange. <laughs> um, what's really missing is public discourse. The regulation that you're talking about is, the, is interesting, but before that is this question of basically public discourse, the public understanding the future that we're headed into, understanding the limitations of the robots rather than thinking of, the, of them as just a savior. And that's why I wrote the book. I want people to kind of imagine 10, 20 years from now rather than just thinking about this singularity world where we're all, all immortal and we all get uh, you know everything we need because robots have solved the energy problem. That, that world either doesn't exist 
uh, for the next hundred years or will never exist. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. We have real issues that merit conversation in the next few decades. Although that's also a good way to segue into into the next topic because you mentioned the singularity uh, people, and I think there's there's a group of uh, robotics scholars or robotics researchers who think that at some point, and they're hopeful that it will happen even within the next few decades, will have the ability to essentially digitally remodel a human brain down to every nook and cranny, and from that model we'll be able to, to re-engineer a new brain and uh, robots from that model. You're skeptical about that, and you say that if there is going to eventually be a synthesis of robots and human biology, uh, it's more likely to be uh, in the field of nanorobotics. Um, can you first tell us what nanorobotics technology is, and then tell us why you think that's uh, a more compelling story? Sure. Nanorobotics is really about the idea of making complex robot systems that are incredibly small at the micron scale level, so small that they can go anywhere a blood cell can go, a red blood cell. What's powerful about, about nanorobotics is that it really extends a lot of the fabrication technologies we already have for chips, for computer chips at places like Intel. So it's a pathway, it's a road that we're already on, being able to miniaturize everything about the sensors and effectors and even the power systems the robot can have to the point where they're basically uh, on the scales of the smallest pieces of your body. Now, the reason that's powerful is because if you can network those things together, and that's no small task, but if you can get millions or billions of these nanorobots to talk to each other, then they can do pretty amazing things. Uh, you've all heard of the idea of you know spraying these out of a spray bottle onto your window, and they all get out of the little scrubbers, and they, and they clean it. Or they uh, inject them into your bloodstream, and they go in and they actually clean out the atherosclerosis in your veins and arteries and, and make your blood flow well or they go into your heart and they actually do surgery together, uh, kind of like a colony of ants. They go in there and they set up shop and they operate on your heart valve and now it's working great. So that's a very exciting and tantalizing future in which robots are so small that they can go anywhere and then in groups, in colonies, perform tasks uh, that there's no way you can do from the outside nearly as efficiently. The singularity folks are interesting because they keep talking about this idea of consciousness. And one of the most elegant ways that they do it, I think Hans Moravec does, who's one of the fantastic futurist thinkers whose, whose books I read. Moravec says, you know, imagine that you put a person on an operating table and you go to a, uh, you take away their skull so their brain's exposed and they're awake, and you take a single uh, neuron in the brain and you connect it on its inputs and outputs and you test every possible input and output that it could get. And you model that one neuron. And you put that model in a computer, and you wire that computer model, you make it live, and you snip that, mo that one neuron out of that person's brain, and you replace it with the information on the computer with you know, three little wires running to, from the brain to the computer. And he says, now just keep doing this. You can keep talking to the guy. You can keep testing the neurons one neuron at a time until the entire outermost layer of neurons is gone. It's all on the computer, and the person's still awake and alive, except you know, the outer million neurons is all being simulated in the computer. And now Moravec says, keep doing this until you're down to the brainstem, a layer at a time. The person's still alive, they're still awake, they still have consciousness, but everything's in the computer except for the body. They just have a cerebellum and a body. So he uses this kind of gradual argument to make people imagine a future in which the consciousness has gone, it's moved, so to speak, from the body to the computer. 
And then you can do all sorts of wacky things, right? Because now you can snap a different body into that computer. Now, it sounds like science fiction. And to the singularity folks, the point is our ability to invent new technology is, is accelerating. And therefore, this kind of science fiction will become real literally in a matter of 20, 30 years is what most of them think right now. And that idea requires an amazing amount of interconnectivity and uh, ability to model the human brain's dynamics, the way it actually functions, the chemical signals, the analog signals, in ways that we simply don't understand yet. Whereas nanorobotics, the fabrication of chips for computers, is already proceeding. It's already proceeding because the same fabrication plants, these are billion-dollar fab plants that places like Intel have, where they can build ultra-miniaturized devices. So to me, it makes much more sense that we're going to see nanorobotics rocket forward much faster than the science fiction of being able to represent every single neuron and all the chemicals in the human body and all the ways in which neurons signal each other. But then um, there are also projects that I've come across where people are mapping how uh, your physical physiology responds to certain brain activity and are therefore putting implants into brains and then hoping that that will be um, linked up to, say, exoskeletons that will allow paraplegics to walk or you're already seeing implants in, in the brains of um, Parkinson's disease um, sufferers. Um, so there is, it seems like it's not just the nano side. I mean, that is, I guess, what would an implant be? Is it nano or is it is it? Yeah, the best, the, the best implants should be nano. Side? One of the biggest problems with brain implants today is that you have to cut open the, the skull, put in an implant, and it doesn't last very long. You, you run into all sorts of interesting long-term health problems. Nano is powerful because, yeah, you could have implants, you could have an exoskeleton on somebody who's uh, paraplegic, and now they can walk again. Um, you can even do this by measuring a muscular uh, stimuli in, in the muscles themselves, in the muscle sheaths. What's powerful about this is it's possibly one of the most amazing angles for empowerment given to us by robots, which is that folks who are in wheelchairs today, I honestly believe in the next couple of decades, folks who are in wheelchairs today will be walking. And mm -hmm. that's because of exoskeletons, whether they're exoskeletally around your leg or whether they replace your leg altogether. But that totally changes the social circumstance of somebody who's in a wheelchair. They can go where you can go. They can walk around up and down the steps and through the hiking trail. And what's more, the same argument applies to the elderly. Somebody who's in danger of falling and, and breaking their hip can walk much more confidently because this thing won't let them fall. It'll allow them to move, but it'll stop them from damaging themselves. That kind of robot future, I think, is very much in front of us. There's a fairly terrifying uh, fictional scene at the start of one of your chapters um, about nanorobotics where essentially the nanorobots can come under the control of another human being. So essentially you can have human brain to separate human body control or even, and this was really funny, human brain to animal body control <laughs> so that if you put nanorobots into, uh, into a dog, I might be able to control the movements of that dog or something like that. Can you just talk about what, what that would be like and, and if that's something worth uh, worrying about? So the idea is if we can deal with nanorobotics, if we can really nail it down, then we can have transmitters and receivers at the brainstem. So we can detect everything you're sending down your spine, and what's more, we can intercept anything that's going down the spine and change it. That's kind of crazy because once you can do that, then um, I could log in to your body and you could swap with me. So all sorts of movies that we usually watch and laugh 
start to become real. Now, I estimated that way out in the future. I think I was something like 200 or 150 years out from now. So I'm, I'm not considering this to be something that those of us who are alive today have to worry about. But our children's children might, might want to consider that possibility. Um, with animals, the interesting part for things like search and rescue is, what if a search and rescuer could patch into the, uh, the stems, the, the sort of nervous stem of a spider and get through that uh, operation, get through a disaster, look around and try and find survivors that way? So suddenly you can have a snake or a spider controlled by a person. So you almost get back to the Brothers Grimm where you actually do have a, a person turning into a toad, turning back into a person. <laughs> Manimal, I remember that terrible show <laughs> it, it, i mean it, it does i mean everything we're talking about is so science fiction based i mean it's it's quite extraordinary and it does make me think when we get to the point where we're we're doing body swaps um you know financial regulators will have to find a whole new regulatory system for that <laughs> yeah how do we deal with insurance around that one <laughs> yeah um Billy, you wanna you wanna before we close, you wanna just talk about some of the things that that you're working on now. There's a section of your chapter where you you talk about how um, you think that maybe some of the military or corporatist impulses of robotic technology and its and its development and its uses um, could be curbed in favor of communities. Do you wanna give us a, a flavor of what you mean? Sure. Um, I, I run this thing called the CREATE Lab, and CREATE stands for Community Robotics Education and Technology Empowerment. I, I think that business and military interests are really driving robotics technology innovation today. And what's powerful and exciting about robotics is it could be an equalizer. You know, when we have things like a Marcellus Shale fracking debate here in Pennsylvania, the people with the information on that debate are scientists and experts who get hired by industry. The people with the money to go and test the water are rich. They're the industry and, and government sources. But you can flip this around by saying, well, what if we had robots, for instance, that were living in our watershed and testing the water and reporting it into an open community database? Now suddenly the robots are gathering information that enables all of us to have a much better role in being able to make decisions about the watershed and about the implications of resource extraction. That same story works for air pollution. It works actually for many issues around health as well. Because fundamentally, robots uncover the hidden. They're able to make measurements and make something that's invisible visible. And they can network and they can move around. And so my sort of call to arms is we need robotics for community's sake. And a lot of the projects we do at the CREATE Lab are around air quality in Uganda, in the way uh, Ugandans cook in their kitchens. It's around air quality in urban areas in the U.S. and the way we drive. It's around water quality in watersheds where there's resource extraction. Even body, body monitoring in a program we call BodyTrack, where a person is able to massively uh, mash up everything about the way they're living for themselves to start to understand patterns and why sometimes they have ringing in the ears or sometimes they don't sleep well. But basically, robots are really powerful because they can help us make measurements, connect us to the digital world, and empower us to make better decisions. That voice is missing. And unfortunately, even the National Science Foundation, which is our tax money, is going primarily toward efforts that help industry and government, rather than going toward efforts that try to equalize the relationship between communities and the power that companies have over our lives. Does that mean you see a role for robots in our pol political system then? That's an interesting question. Absolutely. One of the things robots can do is they can separate fiction from nonfiction in politics. When yeah. politicians tell you that the air quality is much better in Buffalo than it was 
five years ago and you should re-elect them, you could actually look at uh, what they're doing in Buffalo, uh, for which regions. You could look at the equity gap between where air pollution improved and where it didn't. And if you have a massively distributed air quality sensors, you can actually make a map that shows people how the poorest people in that city, and I'm just picking on a, on a city by random, by the way, but the poorest people in that city are being subject to the worst air pollution, and the richest people are where the best improvement's been. But we don't have those maps. We don't have those maps because there's one federal sensor in the entire city right now. And that one federal sensor is expensive, and it can't move. It's not a robot. It's stuck in one place, and it simply doesn't provide the information that allows us to understand whether the political promises being made to us are worthy of our attention. One That's last fascinating, because yeah. it, it suggests to me that one day you could get to a situation where you could have real-time kind of um, implementation of policy based on real-time statistics that is um, already democratic in a sense and doesn't need like the very extended and, 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 and draining out process of, of voting and um, regulation uh, in the old-fashioned sense, and then you could get things done much more quickly. One of the biggest issues is visualization. I'll just put this one out really quickly, Cardiff, but sure. we did a project with Time Magazine and Google uh, that we just released a couple of weeks ago called Time Lapse, and it's powerful because it shows uh, over the entire globe since 1984 what's changed. You can zoom in anywhere. You can go into the Amazon and see deforestation happening road by road. And then you can pull out and go, my God, it's happening from the left coast to the right coast, the entire uh, coastal boundaries of South America. These are powerful visualizations that are possible now that were never possible before because they can change policy. They can change the kind of discourse people have. And I think robots are a very important ingredient in these kinds of earth-shattering new kinds of visualization. That's fascinating. Uh, one last question, Illa. Do you want to just close by by giving some advice to our listeners, um, and especially those like me, not so much Izzy, who sort of knows what she's talking about already and has been fo and following this for a while, but people like me who are relative novices to the field of robotics and, and sort of think it's important to, to keep track of this. Do you want to suggest uh, maybe one or two other authors or one or two other books other than your own that would further our understanding and interest in the field? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. First of all, I have a blog called robotfutures.org where I review um, all the relevant books that I find as they get published on this sort of topic of futurism and robotics. So um, that, I think, is a useful place to go. And, and if you search for reviews on the robotfutures.org blog site, you'll get some. Race Against the Machine, I think, is a really good one to read um, because it talks about these trends in employment uh, given robots. Another one that I think is kind of interesting is any of the books by Hans uh, Moravec, who is this futurist. He was actually a robotics professor here at Carnegie Mellon, and he's written excellent books talking about the future of the singularity and how it's actually changing our sense of who we are. Uh, there's a book that uh, Jaron Lenier wrote called Who Owns the Future, which talks a little bit about this concept of the cognitive labor society, and that talks about this idea of information and property and how the property that's being accumulated by big companies is actually our behavior, and you can kind of apply that to robotics. And there's, if you do a search on cognitive labor society, there's another couple of books on that that are also really excellent books uh, on that topic. All right. We'll stick up links to, to all those on the site. Uh, Illa, this has been a really great chat. So thanks so much for appearing on Alpha Chat. It's a pleasure. Yes, thanks very much. It was really enlightening. All right. Take care.